Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hey everybody, Chelsea here with Positively Dog-Powered, excited for this week's episode. In episode 16, our last episode, I sat down with a friend and fellow dog trainer, Kayla Fratt of Journey Dog Training. Not only is she a professional dog trainer and was a collegiate skier, she also does conservation work with her working dogs and enjoys ski joring. Our conversation in true dog nerd fashion continued a little longer than expected, so we ended up splitting the chat into two conversations. In episode 16, our last episode, we talked about arousal, preparing for races, and how to handle trail distractions, including teaching an on-by and those pesky off-leash dogs that we might encounter. In this episode, we're talking a little bit more about the ski joring component. We're going to go into different equipment that you might need, skills you'll want to build as a human skier, and special considerations when taking your dog on the trail with you. Before we dive in, I want to thank a podcast enjoyer, Horses for Life 2012, who left us a possum five-star review. It says, thank you for starting this podcast. The training tips and information are great. Interviews are fantastic and very interesting. A great podcast to help people get started, continue learning, and stay motivated. Can't wait for more episodes. Thank you so much. I know that it can be a little time-consuming to go out of your way and write those reviews, and so I just want to let you know that I really appreciate it. As a thank you, I'll be entering you into a raffle for some Positively Dog-Powered merchandise. And of course, if you can't wait to get your own merch, you can head over to our Patreon page or our Bonfire Merchandise store for more ways to get connected and learn more. And now, let's dive into part two of our conversation with Kayla Fratt. I have used my poles before to kind of like Mm -hmm. hold a pole out towards another dog and I'm not trying to stab the dog (laughs) yeah and I try to make it very clear in my body language that I'm not trying to stab the dog so that the owners don't freak out at me Um, right (laughs) but um, I have used poles before to just kind of like body block I guess it's not pole block the other dog. yeah 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 so let's talk a little bit about uh those human skills because obviously skiing does not come naturally to everybody it can feel really awkward it's Mm -hmm. a serious workout (laughs) and there's a lot of coordination um, that you need to be able to do this so let's start with a little bit of what equipment somebody would need and what equipment you would recommend and then we'll kind of dive into body position and mechanics yeah so do we want to focus on classic skiing or skate skiing or both let's do both Okay, cool. We can do that. And, 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 and talk about the difference between them. Absolutely. So yeah, we'll start there. So classic skiing is what you think of, what most people are going to think of with, their, with skiing. This is the skiing where your skis are parallel and you're actually able to go off trail. This is much more kind of traditional skiing. Skate skiing wasn't invented until like the 70s or something. So if you're thinking like trudging through the forest um, as the snow was softly falling, um, you're thinking <laughs> classic skiing. Um, And classic skiing, your skis are going to be longer. They've got more of a curve at the tip, and that's because you're going to potentially be plowing through that powder a little bit more. Um, Your poles are a little bit shorter, and it's a little bit more um, of a shuffling, walking sort of motion. So opposite arm, opposite leg moving together. And how your skis are actually propelled forward is that you have a pocket underneath your foot that's called your kick zone. 
Um, and in some skis, that's going to be some sticky wax. It used to be pine pitch that was used. Um, most of our listeners who are on the more novice level are going to be looking at something like there are fish scales there, which is kind of textured part of your skis or potentially like a felt strip or something else that's added. There's all sorts of cool stuff um, being done now to um, basically create this sticky area under your ski. And the idea there is that as you transfer your weight fully onto say your left ski, your body weight is compressing that down into the snow and you're able to push off of that. And then you're gliding on your right ski because the, so the tricky thing with classic skis as far as getting them fit right is that they have to be suited not just to your height, but to your weight. So that you have to be the right weight that you're able to compress that kick zone on one ski while simultaneously having the kick zone on your other ski, not dragging so that you can glide. Yep. So that's classic skiing. Um, your basic equipment for both is going to be the same. You need boots, you need skis, you need poles. And then you obviously need like comfy winter gear. I um, A lot of like trail running winter sort of gear is basically what you're looking for. So you want wicking, yep. you, don't want, you don't want jeans, um, no cotton, anything like that. You want wicking, you want layers, you want light. Um, so mm -hmm. I generally am skiing in stuff where it's really easy for me to remove things. You will almost never see me skiing in a jacket unless I'm really intensively coaching um, and going really slowly and taking a yep. lot of breaks. Um, and even then, sometimes you won't, just depending on the weather. Obviously, like, you know, skiing, we can have a 50 degree temperature swing um between one day and another cross-country skiing so it could be 25 degrees one day and negative 25 the other day obviously you're going to dress differently for the two yeah um so then skate skiing in contrary you've got shorter skis and longer poles and it's much more of a movement similar to roller skating or ice skating um again it was invented much more recently you need to be on a groomed trail for it so sometimes kind of best case scenario you might be able to get away with like a snowmobile sort of trail but it's bumpy and it kind of sucks <laughs> um so you really need to be somewhere that is specifically groomed for cross-country skiing to be on skate skis um and for skate skiing the motion it tends to be much more aerobic what i'm instructing people what i tell people is classic skiing it's generally really easy to get up and move in your first day you are going to be able to go forward and feel good classic skiing, but it is really hard to get really fast classic skiing. There's so much finesse in classic skiing. Skate skiing, those first couple days or even weeks can feel awful. It is so much coordination. It is so frustrating um, because you're trying to move your skis and your arms in these different ways. A lot of people try too hard with their arms and then they're not using their big massive quad muscles the way they should be. Um, and then you end up with all sorts of weird form things where you're reaching really far with your poles and then your butt is sliding out behind you. So then your center of gravity is sliding behind you and then you're falling all the time. It is so hard, but within those first couple days or weeks, most people are actually able to go relatively fast skate skiing. Like once you get that motion down, it's mm -hmm. pretty easy to be pretty fast skate skiing. So that's kind of the, the difference I explain to most people. Most people, if you have never ice skated, roller skated, downhill skied, anything like that, I would not recommend starting with skate skiing. I would recommend yep. kind of getting used to being attached to skis and poles with classic skiing first, and then switching over to skate skiing if you do really want to do it. Because they, they I'm obviously biased. I'm a big skate skier, um, but like they're the the fast, sexy ones on the trail. I think everyone <laughs> yeah. wants to be a skate skier deep down. <laughs> I'm biased, but like that's where I think we're all going. Um, and the nice thing with skate skiing as well is, um, well, not the nice thing, but like for me as a ski jorer, classic skiing, you do tend to you have to, you're generally in a track that makes it easier to keep your skis parallel. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I don't love having my dog running in that track. Part of it's a courtesy thing that's really deeply yeah. ingrained in me. No one likes to be the person who's ruining the track that has been carefully groomed. And yeah. I also just kind of look at it as like a potential like toe sprain, ankle rolling thing for my dogs. If those tracks are really hard packed, potentially mm-hmm. it was warm yesterday afternoon, it was groomed, and then it froze again overnight, and you're skiing now at 9 a.m. Um, it's re- that could potentially be kind of hard on your dog's paws. So that's I, I prefer ski drawing from a skate skiing point of view than classic skiing. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. You're allowed to be biased. <laughs> so body position, I do find mm-hmm. is one of the biggest things or the biggest challenges when people oh, are absolutely. just getting started is, you know, where do you put your center of gravity? Mm-hmm. Where are you putting your weight? Because oftentimes people are trying to push themselves forward, causing, Mm -hmm. you know, their um, balance to be too far forward and then they overcompensate. Mm -hmm. So when someone is getting started, how do you coach them through being able to hold their body in the appropriate way to propel themselves forward? Yeah. So in both classic and skate skiing, your body position is broadly similar, which is nice. Um, So we'll, we'll start there. Um, My ski coach used to call it baby catching position, which I've never heard from anyone else. But basically the idea is if someone was leaning out of a window like 10 feet above you and was going to drop an infant into your arms, how are you going to catch it? And the idea is you're going to bend your knees a little bit. You're going to tuck your hips forward a little bit. You're going to engage your core and you're going to round your shoulders to catch the baby. (laughs) So shout out to that one. Yeah. Um, I think it also looks you're kind of like a hunched like almost like you're like bent over your phone sort of thing but you are engaging your core more so there's a bunch of different ways that I will think about it for um for my 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 coaches my my trainees what are what do I call them my my athletes that I'm coaching um you know so with skate skiing in particular you want your knees toes hips and nose all kind of aligned Um, so kind of like that nice straight line, you want everything kind of moving together. Um, and then as far as that core body position, I often think about bringing my belly button down and in kind of towards my spine, kind of as if you were doing a sit up. Um, or you can kind of think about crunching your bottom rib in towards the top of your hip. Um, so kind of either of those, like you are flexing your core and part of it is you really want to be bringing your tailbone in and forward rather than having it sticking out and back. A lot of people, we we used to kind of tease people for being a little bit too much like a ballerina. So if you've got this really straight spine and this quote unquote good posture, you're actually sticking your butt out behind you. We would also call it barstool butt. Um, And that again, brings your center of gravity back behind you. People then start compensating by reaching with their poles, trying to pull themselves forward with their poles. A, that's exhausting. B, you look dumb. It's so common. It's so common. Like I shouldn't even tease people for it. Um, but we really want to be able to bringing that center of gravity up and forward so that it's in the right place over the skis because your skis are slippery. You notice yeah. when I was talking about skate skiing, you don't have a kick zone. You are moving yeah. in skate skiing through kind of lateral push movement and, and leaning. So you need to be leaning forward in order to get your skis to glide forward because they will also glide backwards if you shift your body weight backwards. They will uh-huh. go backwards almost as happily as they will go forwards. Especially um, if you are on an incline. Especially if you are on an incline. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so you want those kind of rounded shoulders as well. Um, and generally, you want to um, not be collapsing your arms in both. So as you're kind of reaching forward with your poles, you want your pole tip to be planting around the t- the toe of your boot. Not much further forward. You'll see people trying to really reach forward. 
you don't want that that like straight out arm look. Um, that means they're reaching too far forward. Um, and then once you've planted your pole, you don't want to collapse your arm. So you, I, I'm trying to demonstrate here, but obviously this is a podcast. So if you plant <laughs> your pole, it should be at about a 90 degree angle from your your elbow. <clears throat> you know, so imagine like Rosie the Riveter kind of flexing. You're at about that angle, and then mm-hmm. you actually want to keep your arm at that level of bend as you push forward because that then transfers that movement and that power from your pole into your arm into your body into forward momentum if you plant your pole and then collapse your arm so bring your bicep into your forearm you've just you just worked as a spring you just absorbed or you you just worked as a shock i guess you just absorbed all of that shock into your body so you wasted all that movement because it didn't get transferred over into forward movement and then you do want to be following through and this again is for both Mm -hmm. skate and classic skiing broadly so then you'll actually see people following through and extending their arm out behind them. And that is when the arm can actually open up into closer to like 180 degrees of like an open arm movement. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is something that takes some skill, yes. right? And it's something that mechanically the human needs to learn how to do before they even consider attaching a dog. <laughs> Once they do attach a dog, how does having that hip belt or waist belt with the dog pulling, change your balance? And how do you make sure you're still keeping that good form as the dog's attached and pulling? Mm -hmm. I actually think it's almost easier with a dog attached because it does bring your hips forward in the way they need to be. It is very hard to have bar stool butt while you Mm -hmm. are attached to a dog. So again, though, that's why I think it's so important to learn how to do this well without the dog first, because otherwise, if you're kind of constantly compensating your dog is constantly compensating for your bad form by pulling on you and then you try to ski without your dog there's a very good chance you're going to have bar stool butt um because you're so used to your hips being pulled forward by your dog Mm -hmm. um so then once you are hooked up to the dog the biggest thing for me is just keeping an eye on my cadence and my tempo and making sure that as i have the extra forward moment momentum from my dog that i'm actually able to keep up with that and i might be I will free skate a lot more often. So I, when I'm pulling with Barley, I will actually potentially just not use my poles at all and kind of actually like roller skate more with my mm-hmm. skis um, because we're going too fast for me to add my poles into the into the mixture again. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you will actually see people in the World Cup doing that as well when they're not skiing with their dogs on just like a slight downhill or something. They'll just pick up their poles and free skate. So there's nothing wrong with that. You're not being dumb. Um, uh, no one's going to laugh at you. You're going to look great. Um, just get the cool sunglasses and no one will judge you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, when you are hooked up to the dog, again, that is going to bring your hips a little bit farther forward. So make sure that you are not, make sure you're not fighting that. Um, make sure that mm-hmm. you're not kind of pulling back too much on your dog. If your dog is pulling you fast enough that you are getting scared, then that might be a time to switch over to a slight, you know, maybe do a 180 and your dog is pulling you too fast because you're going slightly down a hill and you mm-hmm. just need to practice going uphill with your dog first, where it's a little bit less scary um, and a little bit um, less speed. Because again, trying to keep track of your tempo and cadence with your poles might be hard as you're, you're going so much faster with your dog. Um, and, um, and then keeping an eye on making sure that your dog is able to stay out in front of you so that you're not accidentally stabbing them with your poles or getting tangled with them in any way. Or um, running into them with your skis. Yeah. Yeah. I would practice, you know, again, without the dog, I would practice stopping 
um, on downhills, you know, skate skiers mm-hmm. will often be able to do like a hockey stop sort of thing, yeah. um, which looks rad as heck, but um, <laughs> it's also not always the most practical thing, especially again on classic skis, because they're so much longer, it's much harder to maneuver those classic skis into a hockey stop. So there mm-hmm. you're going to stop by doing more of like a pizza pie sort of thing. So you're bringing your skis, um, if you have French fry position where they're nice and parallel, and then you're <laughs> going to bring them out into pizza pie, which means stepping one of your skis out of that track and actually kind of grinding into a stop yeah Um, I would not recommend stopping using your poles um so you're not going to want to take your poles out in front of you and kind of stab the snow to slow down you will see people do this you will probably do it instinctively but try not to get in the habit of it I know two people who have broken their collarbones doing it because they tried to stop too fast jammed their pole into their collarbone and broke the collarbone potentially 5k away from the trailhead um it sucks don't do it yeah yeah So, I I mean, again, like so much of this is so many different um, pieces of foundation work. You know, can your dog go straight? Can your dog have the line out? Can your dog move over right or left? Can they speed up? Can they slow down? Can you move right, left, speed up, slow down, stop? Do you have those skills? And before you put the two together, you need to have both sides of that equation well done. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot yeah, of skiing without the dog and it's a lot of running with the dog and learning all those directionals. Um, exactly. Exactly. And it is well worth the investment and time that you will make because Absolutely. when you go out together as a team, it's going to be much smoother, much less frustrating. Everybody's going to be a lot happier if we all have those mm-hmm. foundation skills. Yeah, definitely. And then as far as gear goes, um, I'm sure you've talked about comfortable gear and safe gear for the dogs to be pulling in, but that's a big consideration here. Make sure that you've got a good X-Bag harness or some other harness that's specifically made for pulling. Um, mm-hmm. I always get really cringy when I see, and it's more common in running than it is in skiing, but I've seen, yes. uh, you'll see people running with their dogs on a neck collar. Like for, for God's sake, don't do that. Um, and <laughs> even your basic back clip harness, don't do that either. Yeah. You really yeah. want a harness that's made for the dog to be able to lean into it and pull um, comfortably. And then particularly for skiing or anything where you want the dog to be pulling you, make sure that you've got something that's got a, a nice wide back strap um, so it's comfortable for you. I like leg straps. Mm-hmm. I like the Omni Drawer from Roughwear, which has an emergency release. It also can hold my water bottle and a couple other pockets. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times I don't have it holding my water bottle. I have it holding my phone in the water bottle pocket. Yeah. I have those stupid gigantic iPhones that doesn't fit in the pockets <laughs> of anything else. It drives me nuts. Um, and, um, gosh, I was going to say something else about gear. Um, oh, you do want something where you can, you can release the dog quickly if need. Um, particularly with skiing, I've had to release Barley just after like a nasty crash or something, just so that I can figure Mm -hmm. out how to get up again. Um, so, you know, make sure that you've got that kind of under control. The nice thing with skiing is most of your crashes, as you learn how to ski, you will learn how to fall. If you are not falling, you are not learning. So that is okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, try to fall over onto like a hip. If you're, you can learn a lot from how you're falling as well, which we can get into in a minute if we want. Um, and again, you may need to release the dog. And then as you're getting up, you want to kind of roll over onto your knees and push up from there. You don't want to be trying to haul yourself up with your poles. Most cross country skiing poles are made of carbon fiber and they will break. Um, and if they're not made out of carbon fiber, they're made out of aluminum and they will bend. Um, so uh-huh. don't use your poles. I will, I've been known to take poles away from my, my skiing trainees as they're getting up because they're yeah. going to break their poles and that's not allowed. Um, and absolute worst case, no one's going to laugh at you if you have to take your skis off to get back up. Yeah. Um, yeah. people will probably pity you, which can feel embarrassing. Um, but they will not laugh at you. Yeah. Cross country yeah. skiers are usually nice people. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so are dog powered sports people too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. I have less experience with them, honestly. But uh, like, yeah, cross country skiers, we, we're nice. Yeah. We're just, yeah. We're just happy Northerners. Like, <laughs> we're just psyched to see people out on the trail. Like, I'm like tearing up about it because I just love it so much. Oh my gosh. It's such a good community. <laughs> So let's talk about those falls because I think a lot of times we, everybody, right? We always highlight the good. Sometimes it's not as fun to talk about the less good, Mm -hmm. Um, but learning how to fall the right way is really important for you because as you said, if you're not falling, you're not learning. And Mm -hmm. part of this will be you falling. So falling in the right way and learning how to get up in the right way is going to be important for your health and well-being mm-hmm. so as you feel your balance start to go and you know you're gonna fall what's the first thing that you do i bend my knees more <laughs> i get closer to the ground um, a lot of people as they're starting to feel their balance starting to go um they will try to throw their arms or poles up in a way to kind of like woo, catch themselves again that just brings your center of gravity up more and again you have to remember that like your body and your brain stem does not know you are on slippery skis. So your body and your brainstem wants to do something that would work if you were on solid ground and you are not. So really trying to train yourself to bend down more, get closer to the ground. Um, You know, obviously there are definitely going to be times where you can catch yourself. One of the things, again, those star turns we talked about can be really helpful. I have certainly been known to catch myself. Most of my falls at this point come on downhills where I'm just getting a little bit too ambitious with how I'm I'm attacking a downhill. Um, Yeah. And being able to step your turns, like I've definitely been known to like lose track of one of my skis and then turn it into like this very silly looking step turn. Mm -hmm. Um, So learning how to catch that, it can be really good. And then if you do go down, you know, again, trying to go to one side or the other rather than forward or back. Um, Also, particularly if you're finding yourself going forward or back a lot or kind of falling down in the center, like if you're finding yourself kind of crumpling with... um, your knees going together and your skis going out to the side, A, you're going to hurt something in your knees. So that's, that's a bad fall direction. Um, any of those kind of things, we can, we can tell a lot about your technique and potentially what's going wrong from any of those falls. So I like to see people who are falling over onto their hip, partially because it's safer. And, you know, you've just got like this big, you know, your big meaty thigh bit that like is not a huge injury prone area for most of us. Obviously, mm-hmm. any of our older listeners, we act, we do not want you breaking hips. Um, but um, generally, that's a good direction to fall. It also shows me that you're transferring your weight well. Again, particularly for skate skiing, we want mm-hmm. to be seeing that transfer of weight from one ski to the other. So if you're falling to one side or the other, that actually means you're getting a good transfer of weight. It's something I'm always really excited about when I see in my, in my students um, because it means that they're getting that weight transfer. If you're falling into the center of your skis a lot, that really means you're not transferring your weight enough. A lot of times your skis are too far apart. You need to bring them together and you need to start thinking about getting all of your weight over onto one ski and then all over onto the other. You might have to slow down a lot and really try about that. Um, and then as far as if you're falling backwards a lot, that again just tells us that your, your center of gravity is too far back. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times those, we also, we kind of joke about snow snakes, um, at least where I am. And uh a snow snake is basically those times where you like you just have a gravity check and you fall over for like no apparent reason. Like this happens to me sometimes when I'm teaching. Like I'll be standing and all of a sudden I just totally lose my balance. Like I just shifted <laughs> my weight a little bit. And sometimes you just fall on your butt. And that's yeah. okay. Um, and then if you're falling forward, that again is potentially telling us that you were reaching too far forward with your poles, you, your butt stuck out backwards, and then all of a sudden you face planted. And that might yeah. end up with you falling in between your skis um, as well. Um, 
so yeah, you can learn a lot about what's wrong with your technique based on how you're falling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, falling is never fun, but it's nope. part of the process, part of the learning process. Mm -hmm. um, I would, one thing that comes to mind, which I know you and I are going to talk a little more about at a different time is fear, because Absolutely. sometimes when um, when we crash, whether we're running, biking, scootering, skiing, doesn't matter, mm -hmm. that can have an impact on the dog's mental state, their excitement to do the sport, how much they're turning around and looking back at us if they're mm -hmm. worried that something scary is going to happen behind. So I, one thing that comes to mind when I, when we talk about falling, particularly with ski joring, would be that if I find myself falling quite a bit, then it might be a good idea to do some human only skills Absolutely. without the dog to kind of fine tune body position and my own skills before bringing the dog back into the picture in order to avoid any potential long-term, you know, mental impacts on the dog. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And particularly with our dogs who may be startled or scared by the fact that we're falling or our dogs who are really emotionally in tune with us and are upset if we uh -huh. seem to be in pain. Um, I also, you know, I tend to find myself comforting my dogs after I've fallen. Um, yeah. So I might just like keep sitting on the snow for a couple minutes, just like, hey, it's okay. Like, you know, you can lick my face for a little bit. Let's take a water break. Like, yeah, you know, I'm really turning it into like something that doesn't have to be super scary for them. I am really lucky that so far I haven't had any falls where I've gotten really tangled up with Barley or hurt mm -hmm. him in any way um, or like hit him with my skis or my poles. Um, I have been in falls like that with other skiers and I can only imagine how upsetting it would be for my dog. I, <laughs> my freshman year of high school, I fell when we were doing a, a ski exercise where we were practicing skiing in sync with the other skiers on our team. And so mm -hmm. we were skiing very, very close together and there was a pile up <laughs> as often oh, no. in this exercise. And I stabbed the guy in front of me with my pole and like ripped his pants and like stabbed him in the butt. <laughs> Oh no! Like, you know, it was it was mortifying. I'm still embarrassed about it. Um, he was a senior and I was a freshman, and I was just like, oh, yeah. "This is the worst that's thing that's ever to happened it. to me in high school." <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, like of course, if something and something like that absolutely could happen with our dogs, and you know, thinking through how to, you know, how to help build their confidence back up and enjoying the sport again. Um, you know, again, in a lot of cases, um, our bad falls and skiing are going to happen on the downhill. So I will actually mm -hmm. let my dog. Um, if I know that I'm on a trail where I've got a very, very long downhill. So like at Breckenridge, their Nordic trails, um, their upper trails, which are the dog friendly ones, are basically like five miles up and then or 5K up and then 5K down. Um, mm -hmm. It's not straight up, but it is. It's very, very broadly uphill and then downhill. I will just let my dogs off leash for that downhill portion. They're allowed to be there. Um, partially because I don't want to have Barley trying to run that fast ahead of me. I will actually mm -hmm. let him run behind me and eat snow and do whatever he needs to do to keep cool. And then I'll stop and wait for him whenever it's safe for me to stop. Um, and also that's partially because that is the place where I am most likely to crash and most likely to crash at speed in a way where I could hit him. So a, a mm -hmm. lot of it is prevention and then, you know, doing what you need to do after the crash um, to, to soothe your dog. You know, you're not going to reward them for being afraid. So mm -hmm. do whatever you need to do to calm them down, make it into something that's not as big of a deal as it, it may be to them. And then, you know, getting back in the saddle, however you need to, to get home and then re reassessing whether you need to leave that home, leave them at home, do some remedial ski training for yourself, do some mm -hmm. remedial confidence building for them or, or potentially you guys are all just 
excuse me, ready to get back into the saddle and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of depends on each dog and, and each human. Yeah. You know, and, and the I crash. Think, I mean, again, I yeah. haven't had a crash with Barley that's as bad as that crash where I stabbed Levi in the butt. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe, you know, there, there might be a time where uh, so far all of our crashes have not, have been a nothing burger to him, but uh -huh. uh, I mean, and I have had some bad falls when I'm running actually with him where I have like ended up with some pretty gnarly road rash um, or whatever on my, on my, uh, on my knees. And I've been like bleeding and kind of like lying on the ground being like, <gasps> you know, like it really yeah. hurts. And like those, that is super stressful for him, um, even yeah. though it didn't hurt him. And we've had to kind of work through that. And then he tends to want to like run looking at me or kind of keep mm -hmm. an eye on me. And I mm -hmm. kind of just let him do that. Like that's yeah. my... I don't know if you've got um, other thoughts there. Like as far as I just let them, if they, if they want to run next to me and look at me or check in on me or anything like that, I just let them do that after those falls. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's important. Again, everybody needs to uh, do what's best for their dog in general. When I'm out with them, you know, I try to set them up so that they're rehearsing the desired behavior. So ideally, you know, if I go out for, a run and their pressure and harness isn't great. They're just not feeling it. You know, I, I will be more likely to bag it than to let them keep running. Mm -hmm. Not great in that pulling harness, you know, but at the same time, if we've just had a crash, like it's totally understandable for the dog to be worried about me, about what's going on behind them. So in that circumstance, depending on how bad it would be, you know, I might, if it's safe for the dog might let them run off leash. For the rest of that mm -hmm. run if it seems yeah. like it's not improving um i'll often kind of cheerlead and reinforce the dog when that head is straight when they are focused back on the trail again um you know but that's also a stress response for them right like they're turning yeah. around and checking in because they're worried about what's going on behind them so we never want to as frustrating as it might be for the person like hey stop looking at me just go like you're causing more problems by turning around and looking at me mm -hmm. the line's getting loose you know all of those stresses I think it's always important to remember for us, the dog is doing that because they're worried and getting frustrated mm -hmm. with them is not going to make it better. It no, will like that's probably going worse. To yeah. 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 And well, and I've noticed like for Barley in particular, like if, if he looks back at me and I try to give him any sort of further information, that tends to be reinforcing to him. So whether right. I'm giving him a known cue, whether I'm giving a verbal correction, whether Correct. I'm cheerleading him, because I've tried all three. Yeah all of them seem to increase the look back behavior Correct. Um, because he's either worried about those corrections that I'm giving um, or he's, you know, and that's like increasing his anxiety. So then he's looking back at me for instruction more mm -hmm. or I'm giving him a cue and further direction, which is tends to be reinforcing for him or I'm cheerleading him, which is reinforcing for him. So my go-to, if he's looking back at me a lot is to just ignore him and just keep me running. too. Yeah. Um, yep. And then, and then and as soon as he does actually get, you know, head forward, line out, then we're, then mm -hmm. we're cheerleading a little bit. Yep. Keeping an eye on that though, because sometimes like if I'm cheerleading him when his, he's running forward, then he's, he like looks back and he's like, oh really? I'm doing a good job? Oh, great. Yeah. And then, you know, and then yeah. I just like broken the, the behavior I wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. It's, it's very variable. Yeah, it is. And every dog is really different in terms of what they need. I think the biggest thing would be to go, to be able to identify in the moment if that starts to happen immediately following a crash and you're unable mm -hmm. to get that forward momentum back, you are likely better off taking a break for the rest of the day, mm -hmm. you know, and, and letting everybody decompress and then coming up with a better game plan 
you know, again, whether that's a shorter, easy run where you don't think you're going to crash on a downhill to boost the dog back up and get them rehearsing desired behavior again, or even going, hey, like that crash happened because my skills weren't where they needed to be. I need to do some me time without the dog and get that back up. But again, being able to identify what you and your dog need as a team will be very different based on each team. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had one more thought on crashes. Oh, the other, you know, if you are seeing like that big decrease in motivation from your dog and they're normally pretty good about running with that line out and they're not, you know, that might be another place where, as we talked about earlier, injuries, you know, and just kind Mm -hmm. of checking back in. I've noticed with Barley in the last couple months, um, he has not been wanting to run line out for me um, at all. He's just wanting to run at my side. Niffler is running out in front of us. Just great. And I'm not sure whether it's because of Niffler. I actually should try running with just Barley and see how he runs or if that hip is bugging him a little bit more than I would like. So at this point, I'm just not putting him in his pulling harness. He's just running on mm-hmm. his normal, like rough wear back clip harness. And mm-hmm. I'm just letting him run at my side. And like, I don't know, his ski jarring career might just be over because he's just not wanting to run line out right now. And I, he's a responsive enough dog that I I know that if he's not doing it, it's because he, he really doesn't want to. And if he doesn't want right. to, it's probably because he kind of can't. Right. Right. Especially when that drive has been there historically. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we are in the process of still circling back with the vets again to figure yeah. out what may be going on there. But because we've been to so many different specialists at this point, like I'm just, at, I, I think it's probably, it might be the sort of injury that we just never get a full diagnosis on and we just never quite fully figure out. And um, he still seems to really enjoy running. He doesn't seem to be sore, but he doesn't want to run fast enough to pull. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, for us right now, that's okay. We'll probably enter a couple races this winter and we'll see if with the adrenaline of, of, um, of the race itself, Mm -hmm. if he actually does want to pull in that situation. And I think he's got enough fitness that that will work fine for us. Um, but I'm definitely keeping a close eye on that and just seeing like, we are doing more shorter runs and I'm trying to figure out exactly how to get him to pull again. But, um, it's, it's a big process of elimination of trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah. You know, the other thing that we have to look at with our dogs, which cold weather makes it a little bit more challenging when we look at keeping them prepared and and helping them prepare for a run is that warm up and cool down process. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, generally for us as humans, it can be easy in our brains to think, oh my gosh, it's cold outside. I just need to, you know, Get get out of the car, get moving, get going, and then I'll warm up. But if we do that too quickly, especially for a dog that's exerting themselves like that, we can have some injuries. So what does your warm-up routine look like? Because I imagine that it's quite different for you when it's, you know, early spring or fall and you're running can across versus when you're out in the snow with them. Yeah. So our our warm-up and cool down for for can across and for running is generally it's going to be a walk. Um, we often, so I currently live at the end of like a half mile long dirt road. So we'll kind of walk that dirt road. Um, we might do some leg weaves. We might just kind of do, do a little bit of limbering up and that is, I'll do a little bit of stretching, um, some of those sorts of things. And then we'll actually hook the dog up. And that's basically our warm up at this point. Our cool down is very similar. So it's also walking down, down that path for a little, for about a half mile, um, and then when we get home, I am doing some stretching. So I'll let the dog drink as much as 
dogs drink as much as they want. And then barley, again, is particularly him more than Niffler is getting some stretching and some massaging. Mm -hmm. Massaging. (laughs) Uh, um, And then for skiing, it is a little bit different. It is challenging, particularly if we are going out. So the race that we got second place at in 2020, it was two degrees um, at the time of the finish. It was zero at the time of the start. It was frigid. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, my... I was coughing for the rest of the day just from like cold, cold long breathing. Yeah. 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 It, it sucked. Um, I was actually, I think I was masked up all day. I was wearing like a, a um, a buff all day. Um, Look at you masking before it was I know, cool. Yeah. Masking before it was cool. Yeah. Cross country skiers have been all about the buffs for a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So for that race, again, I kept him in the car actually. Um, partially as our start line routine because again as we've talked about he's a bit of a maniac at the start line and um, we don't Mm -hmm. need to be practicing that too much and then I was actually um luckily I was already geared up for skiing at this point but my ex-boyfriend was with me and he was oh my god he was the best pit crew ever um he was actually jogging barley a little bit around um around the start line kind of like the block parallel to the start line and kind of doing some jogging with barley we'll have barley put his paws up on things like up onto curbs um, or stumps or things to kind of stretch out that hind end, doing some leg weaves, keeping him warm. Um, he had a jacket on. Mm-hmm. So we had a nice Herta expedition coat that he kept on until the start of the race. We raced, we did the thing, he was hot, and then he was cold. He was he was like shivering, he was miserable, even with the jacket on, like he had just exerted himself enough that he was having a right. really, really hard time warming up again. So we did a little bit more of the jogging, a little bit more of those those basic things. And then we actually did go ahead and put him in the car and we didn't stretch him the way that I would like, but it was just because I didn't feel like I could stretch him in a way that was safe for him with mm-hmm. how cold he was um, and with how cold his muscles probably were. So I decided it was best to just not stretch him and let him, we stretched again later at home once he had warmed up, um, but not pushing that stretching too much in that moment, just because we didn't have a good place that was warm enough to do it for him. Because there was no, yeah. there was no warming tent or anything like that, so I just let yeah. him put him in the car with the with the heater on, um, and let him kind of stay warm until the the awards ceremony. At that point, he had warmed up quite a bit and was a little bit better, and we did a little bit of stretching. Um, I think around the awards ceremony time. Yeah, that's nice. A little bit of rest, heat those muscles back up, and then yeah. let which him is, stretch out again after. Which is again somewhat typical for cross country skiing. It's just not ideal. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, like I know my coach skiing we 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 never stretched before or after and he he always wanted to you know it, it wasn't because he was an irresponsible coach who didn't want us stretching or doing warm-ups or cooldowns but it's you know if you're having if it's you know even if it's 10 degrees out as opposed to negative 10 um both of which are conditions have skied in plenty um it's too cold to stretch you're going to your muscles are going to seize up so what we would uh, our best practice for our high school team was that you would go home you would sh- get in the hot shower and stretch in the shower. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I still have habits. Like as soon as I get in the shower, I'm just like touching my toes, rolling my hips out, like uh, <laughs> have a have an odd shower routine. Once I was in college and we were actually able to, um, you know, we were either at the Breckenridge Nordic Center, which is where we trained quite a bit. We would stretch um, there, which had a nice uh, nice fire pit. We'd stretch around that. Or when we were doing more dryland training, or if we had enough snow in Colorado Springs, we would stretch in the athletic center, and we were able to do that right after practice. Um, so a lot of times for us as skiers, we're doing our warm-ups, cool-downs, and stretching indoors, which does mean there's a little bit more of a time gap in between when you're skiing and when you're stretching than one would like, ideally, for a workout. I don't know how like the right. Olympic team does it, because I'm sure they've figured something better out, but... 
I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now what about your warm up routine? Is it generally kind of tied in with the dog? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We basically just, I mean, and again, I'm no, I'm no professional trainer for either of these things, either as a, I mean, I've coached some cross country skiing and I've coached some, I've coached a lot of dogs, but I'm not, I'm not a fitness expert on either end of the thing. Right. So I follow my, my, I pay for a Berkabiner training plan um, every year, um, just through the American Berkabiner Foundation. And I follow their warmups. And then I basically just adapt any of their warmups and cool downs that I can for barley. So, you know, if I'm walking a half mile and then I'm doing a little bit of stretching and a little bit of, you know, rolling out your hips and lunges and whatever, then Barley's walking a half mile and then he's getting some leg waves done. And then he's getting, you know, standing up with his front paws on a stump and stretching out his hips. Um, yeah. you know, I, I'm just adapting as much as I possibly can. And then there are obviously some things where I just like, I can't figure out how to make the dog do this or, uh, or it's not relevant. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you do what you can. And I just kind of adapt everything that I, I, I know professionals have created for humans and mm-hmm. then adapt it over to dogs as best as I possibly can. Yeah. So for a lot of our listeners, I think a lot of people might be engaged in other dog powered sports, but haven't yet tried ski joring. I think a lot of people have aspirations of trying ski joring and maybe aren't as involved mm-hmm. in this in dog powered sports in general yet. Yeah. Um, you know, what would you recommend in terms of someone getting started? What are kind of some steps or tips for them? If you're in an area that has decent cross-country skiing, you can prop most of these areas. <clears throat> so like in Missoula, in Breckenridge, in um, northern Wisconsin, like the three places that I've lived um, that have a lot of skiing, most of them have a good club team that you can join um, that have really, really affordable ski lessons or ski clinics. So I would start out getting your your skills up and going and getting involved with those clubs. A lot of them also will have ski swaps, which are great places to find cheap gear. Um, I've been to just endless ski swaps. They're my heaven. Um, <laughs> and they, they do tend to be pretty cheap, pretty well stocked. Um, and mm-hmm. getting involved with those club teams um, in your area is a really great place to go there. I, I don't even want to call them a club team because that's, it makes them sound more imp- like competitive and intimidating right. than they really are. If you're not in an area like that. So, you know, when I lived in Denver, um, I was commuting up to Breck. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not super not ideal. No, yeah, no, it's it's like a two long hours ish. Yeah. yeah, about two hours, um, six with traffic sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, Colorado, <laughs> gotta gotta love I seventy. <laughs> um, so there, you know, if you lived in Denver or if you lived in, um, I don't know, if you in, a- anywhere, if you live in Georgia, anywhere, the South. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Say you live in Georgia. Um, when you are going somewhere where you do want to ski, um, you know, taking those lessons, um, most Nordic centers do have some sort of lesson program or some sort of clinic product program. Um, the West Yellowstone Nordic Ski Festival would also be a great, like, if you want something to do over Thanksgiving, it is a week-long Nordic skiing festival with just amazing instruction. You're also, like, staying in West Yellowstone, and it's just beautiful. Um, That's awesome. You will see me there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, looking at some of those sorts of places to get your skiing chops up to up to snuff. Um, I'm mixing mm-hmm. a lot of metaphors there, but getting good at skiing. Yeah. And then in the meantime, practicing, as I've talked about, you know, your your directionals and your dog skills, maybe on foot. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think, I think that is. And, and getting, yeah, no, and getting the dog moving too, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that we're not going from a couch potato to mm-hmm. expecting totally. to ski drawer with the dog, making sure yeah. that we're building muscle and hiking and running. And if you want to 
if you're able to take them, you know, bike drawing with you or totally. even running free with a bike, making sure that their fitness level is up to where it needs to be. Yeah. And the um, same for yours. I would also not recommend, I get people asking sometimes, so particularly say you're in Georgia and they're like, should I start on roller skis? Absolutely not. Roller yeah. skis are horrifying creations that has <laughs> a highly competitive cross-country skier I am still terrified of. Most of the scars on my knees are from roller skis. They do not have brakes. Do not yeah. start there. Um, potentially after several years of skiing, you, you should get some. Potentially. Yeah. Um, rollerblading <laughs> would be great. Like if you've got a good riverfront path and you want to rollerblade with or without your dog, um, mm -hmm. it's enough of a similar motion for skate skiing that it is going to build muscles in the right places um mm -hmm. it won't necessarily make your technique perfect the way that skate skiing or roller skiing would but it's just so much safer and so much easier um so yeah i would definitely recommend sticking with that over um trying to go ahead and learn on roller skis i know people who have done that and but most of them are incredibly competent and determined athletes and they're still pretty nuts i would not not recommend. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that between these two episodes, I think there's a lot of awesome content here yeah. that, that people will get for training themselves, training their dogs. You know, it kind of comes down to that same idea of remembering that you and your dog are a team and that mm -hmm. when getting involved in these sports, we all need our own equipment and we mm -hmm. all need our own skills. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we build those skills separately mm -hmm. and really master them before we bring the two parts of the team back together. And oftentimes, even when we do that, we're back mm -hmm. at the bottom, working Absolutely. our way back up again. So just taking the time to master all of those needed skills and then just remember you're out there to have fun with your dog. Absolutely, yeah. Enjoy yeah. nature really and be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any last minute tips for our listeners, Kayla? No, I think, I mean, I could talk about this literally all day. Um, but uh, I think, I think that more or less covers, covers the, everything we set out to cover today. Yes. Yes. I think so too. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, and yeah, yeah. And if people have any more questions, they can always find uh, like particularly questions about like the skiing side of things. Cause I know like mm -hmm. you've got the dog powered side of things covered, but if people want to talk about the skiing side of things or try to connect at a race or anything, um, they, they can find me over on Instagram um, and you know, all the social medias. I'm very, very active, particularly on Instagram. So that's a good place to, to find me if anyone's interested in connecting at a race hopefully uh hopefully you know now that we're all getting vaccinated uh that'll happen again this coming winter i sure hope so that oh would be pretty God, great to get out and see some people and go do our dog powered sports and groups again yeah yeah absolutely let's get some snotsicles going like i'm all about it <laughs> can't wait <laughs> <laughs> well thank you again for your time kayla and i yeah. hope that you have an awesome day thank you you too so until next time have fun chasing tails on the trails.